Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is The Comfortable Spot. Welcome. Today my guest is motoring journalist Bob Flavin. Bob has a real passion for cars and with over 13 million viewers on his YouTube channel, Bob is one of the most popular motoring journalists in Ireland. I have a great passion for automobiles myself and was looking forward to chatting with Bob, so I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. Bob, hi, how are you? Thanks for joining me on The Comfortable Spot. Thanks, Ken. Good to be on, actually. It is very comfortable, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> well, it's wintertime, so we're all kind of wrapped up now, isn't it? It's coming, you can feel the cold the coming in. The weather's weird. It's 14 degrees. Yeah. It's supposed to be cold, but it's <laughs> 14 degrees and kind of rain and a bit drizzly. It's a little bit like summer. Yeah, exactly. You don't know where you're, especially when you're concerned the weather, like over the last few days, it's been raining and then sunny, raining and sunny. So yeah. um, you, uh, you, you talk about cars a lot. Cars are your thing. And uh, I, I suppose I better come clean. Cars are my thing as well. So... <laughs> It's, we have to be careful not to get into too much nerdy stuff here, I think. No, no you don't want to go too nerdy because you, you'll alienate everybody who actually doesn't know anything about cars. Or maybe I'm curious as well. Uh, cars found me more than I found cars now. Like it's become um, like I'm the car guy now when a radio station wants to comment about car stuff. I'm the car guy to call. But I never really pushed myself that way. I just like mm-hmm. reviewing cars. It's like cars and and. People think I talk because cars are so broad. You know, it's it's such a there's tax, there's insurance, there's licensing, there's all these law bits. Then there's the passion of it. Then there's the vehicle itself, the technical part of it. So it's such a broad church of a thing that uh, anybody can be into some part of cars at some point. Yeah, and it, were you always interested in cars though as a kid, or was it just as you say something that you got into maybe when you got a bit older and probably, as in Ireland's case, you know, could afford a car because when you're kids you can't afford yeah. a car. I was always into, um, yeah, I was always into the look of cars. I never into like building them or repairing them or mechanical stuff. My father did. Like, I, we, I had my dad fix cars. We know Vauxhall Vivo at the front was always broken down. So I always helped them. We're not a mechanical family. And we weren't a car family either. So we weren't like going to racetracks every weekend or surrounding the car scene growing up. It, there wasn't really a car scene. But as I got older... I fell in love with, I, I watched every episode of Top Gear, the original Top Gear now, I'm talking about the one with, with Woolard on it from the 50s, 60s, 70s or somewhere, started in there, somewhere, I think the 60s or 70s started there, um, up until Clarkson, Fifth Gear, all the other car shows, and there's loads of other car shows from the UK, and it all came out of the UK at the time. Uh, and so I fell in love with all that stuff, but I didn't realise you could do it as a job until I became an adult. <laughs> <laughs> then I went, hold on, you can get this car for free. You do it as a job. This is amazing. So, <laughs> that's, <laughs> I don't know. I missed out on a lot of years of my life not doing this job. Yeah. And of course, it, in the 90s, cars really went from being, you know, having this batch of reliable models and then having a load of unreliable models to kind of mm. almost every car being reliable. So it was kind of exciting, wasn't it, in the 90s when that happened? Yeah. There was a, there was a funny time we went through. It turned into a business. So car Mm. companies originally were invented by people who had a passion for the combustion engine or for engines or for transport or the future, like Henry Ford. Uh, You know, the first factory ever created was created to create electric cars. That was the first thing they ever set out to do was the Henry Ford plant. Then he made the Model T and that kind of changed everything for But But essentially, they went through these very passionate people who were hugely enthusiastic about cars 
to becoming a business in the 80s and it became a, a world-renowned business. And those, those guys kind of disappeared out and they started to make it cheaper. They wanted to build cars that are more reasonably priced. And of course, MG was created and all these kind of cheaper brand cars were coming out and Rover started to make their cars cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and it became less and less reliable all the time. So it became this horrible, uh, just passionate people, but there's an accountants involved. But since then, they figured out how to make it a little bit more reliable. Into the 90s, it started to become a little bit better. But the Japanese continued on making reliable cars. It was European cars that became the problem, you know, mm. as we tried to compete with the Japanese on price and just couldn't. And also, we saw a lot of companies go to the wall in the 1980s. Like, you know, um, either they were swallowed up by bigger companies or they just disappeared completely. And that was probably um, a result of that as well, was it? Yeah, most people don't realize that a lot of the car brands that they would have heard at, and they'd probably see the odd one here and there at at car events, still classic car events like uh, Woolard or, or, or Woolsley or any of those kind of older version cars, they were all made in industrial states. Essentially, there was a group of five or six lads rolling up their short sleeves and putting together a car. <laughs> that's kind of so that's how they were built. So a lot of those car companies who got a few cars coming out, maybe got 15 or 20 cars a month or maybe maybe 10 cars a year even, were just bought out. They were sold out to to the MG group or to Rover group or to bridge one of them, one of the groups would buy them up or to take in the technicians who were building the cars to work in their own factory, which was just, there was only one technician in the whole of the factory. So that was just that factory finished. So a lot of them are kind of amalgamated into the late 80s and then into the early 90s until eventually you end up now with what you've got left, which is actually, if you look at it now, there's actually no independent car company left now that actually just makes its own cars. Toyota was there for a while, mm. but even Toyota's hooked up a BMW these days. And actually during the 80s, a lot of the bigger companies were kind of hoodwinks, weren't they? Because I remember um, Ford buying AC cars, for example, in the UK. Mm. And AC are famous for the Cobra, which is kind of linked to the Shelby Cobra, which is, you know, yeah. if you're anyway a motor car fan, you'll know what this car looks like. And the original guy, AC, they were swallowed up by Ford. But in, within a couple of months, they realized they just bought a donkey. And yeah, they, just, they, they just all kind of... did that. At some point or another, Chevrolet did it as well, but with multiple places. Mm. They bought up car. Then they got bought out themselves. Saab did it. Uh, Saab tried to buy up all kinds of places. Then it ended up being bought out by GM. GM sold it to somebody else, sold it to somebody else. Now it's gone. So this happens so many times throughout history. You find that... Um, that a, a company does well until it starts to make good profits. Once the profit, once they get launched onto stock markets and the profits become the thing, they'll either get bought. And this is this is continues on now with Google and and Microsoft, who went through a huge point of just buying up any company who would trouble one of their products. So everything that Google does today, Google Sheets and Google Docs and Gmail, that none of that's invented by Google. It was all invented by somebody else. And Google just bought the company and turned it into one of their products and then just got rid of it again. Uh, even Google Chat. So car companies were doing that exact thing all the way through the 90s into the noughties where you end up with Volkswagen owning almost everything on the market from mm. trucks right down to motorbike parts. You know, they owned it pretty much everything and they didn't own it, they owned shares in it. Can we go back to the beginning? Because what I'm curious about the auto industry is the longevity of, for example, the engines. And I wanted to ask you, why has, say, the internal combustion engine been so successful? Is it because of the fuel monopoly or was it just a simple case that it was easy to build and manufacture? Well, at the beginning, the very first electric cars, the very first cars were electric, all of them, invented by a Scottish guy uh, way back, like 1879 or so, there was, there was battery-powered vehicles. Um, 
into the 1900s, there was actually more electric cars on the road in London than there was horse-drawn carriages as taxis. The two of them existed. Mm-hmm. Now, they were single-use batteries. They weren't very efficient. Um, Henry Ford got involved in America, starting to make electric cars. Uh, they all had a go at it, but the problem really began in World War One. So 1916, 1915, 1916 was the build-up to World War One. It changed everything. It was the first kind of large-scale European modern war that we're going to have. And you have to remember, at the beginning of the World War One, America got involved, England got involved on horseback. Okay, so this is we don't we don't even think about it. This is like the Roman guys or the guys going with chariots, right? That's essentially what you're looking at in World War One. By the end of World War One, we had tanks. We had fully mechanized, we had tanks and we had airplanes. But there was no way that you could make these things from battery power. So the combustion engine was a much simpler way to do it. It was easy, you could transport the liquid fuel essentially anywhere, and they were very light. Batteries are very heavy. The, the internal combustion engine is 100, 150 kgs is the sump off. The bottom is very light. So very easy to put into these vehicles and you could get some sort of horsepower of it until you got to the point where you got diesel engine, which was invented by a guy called Rudolf Diesel. Uh, he invented the engine, not the fuel. The fuel has never existed. The fuel is just a version of petroleum. But essentially, the diesel engine uh, was invented, which got good fuel economy, but different way of combustion. Uh, instead of using spark plugs, you could have this much more reliable speed combustion, which is an easier way to make things ignite back then using dirty fuel. And it would run on anything. It would run on diesel, run on peanut oil, run on vegetable oil. As long as it burned, it would, it would use it. So the fuel was the actual driving force, not some sort of big, bad monopoly from from fuel giants, because they didn't really exist at the time. They were, they were just individuals pulling oil out of the ground. So really what happened was the fuel became much more available. And if it wasn't gasoline or diesel or some form of the one or the other, you could use something else like lamp oil to make your car go. And so with diesel and petrol, we have them now. They're the kind of mainstream uh, sources of of uh, fuel for, for vehicles across the world. Um, mm. Obviously now the push is towards electric cars and we have a huge push. And every company seems to be exploring it in some way or another. Some are going really far ahead with the likes of Hyundai and Toyota to a certain degree. And then some are kind of a bit more slower. But I would be curious to know, especially with the way things are going with the kind of forwarding, following into a recession that we have, is the idea that diesel, which used to be the cheaper fuel, is now more expensive than petrol. So I'm curious to know what you think will be the future for diesel and petrol. Will we see those two forms completely removed from, from say, auto cars, but still maybe being used in the higher and larger forms of uh, locomotion, like, say, trains and trucks. So I'm just curious what you think about it. What's What would you be your prediction in, ten say, 10 years' time? Well, it's a good question because at the moment we're in an energy revolution. Uh, realistically, mm. we the people of the Industrial Revolution didn't know they were in, in the Industrial Revolution when it was happening. It was later on that people called it in history. And right now it is the energy revolution. So we're moving everything from fossil fuels, which the, the entire planet was was powered by fossil fuel for, for a long time. We had at least 100 years now at this stage. We had turf fire, we had coal fire, we have uh, hydro stations, which are deadly to run on water, but you pump the pump that pumps it back up for years was run by coal. So it's all there. We had steam power also run by combustion engines. Now we had nuclear power for a while, but People are very nervous about nuclear. Nuclear is really clean, but people are really nervous about nuclear because of certain disasters that have happened in the past, Fukushima being one of them, and of course Chernobyl as well. But right now you're in this revolution where we're trying to figure out how we can make electricity and how we can make electricity power for everyone 
from the sun or from the wind or from the water or from movement because realistically we can't burn fossil fuels forever. Just even excluding petrol and diesel for a moment, you can't burn coal and you just can't do it forever. It's just going to put out a huge amount of smog. And anybody as old as maybe me and you will remember coal fires all over Ireland for years and years and years. And indeed, and particularly this time of the year, there was smog everywhere. You could taste the stuff. And smokeless coal, of course, is complete nonsense. You know there's no such thing as smokeless coal. But realistically, we have to change over. So there is a certain switch happening, but the switch is a profiteering switch. And this is where I think things are starting to go wrong. Instead of doing something for the environment or people trying to make money from it, which is great. Making money is fine. I'm okay with people making money in business. But we're being sold on some fronts a bit of a pig because people who are commenting or people who are being requested to come along to events and talk at events and talk about the future of power are people who sell things into that industry. Mm. So they're not journalists. Journalists don't sell anything. Journalists, by by their very nature, up front, have, they don't take anyone's side. They don't really care who's doing what. They're just telling a story. That's kind of the way it is. So, but when you go along to some of those events where they're they're trying to do the electric car future, the solar panel future, and they get an electric car seller or someone who sells something into the electric car industry to stand on the stage and say everything is wonderful. Well, that's bias. You need the opposite of that as well. You need someone else who says everything's not wonderful. That's debate. That's a different thing entirely. That's that's healthy, right? It's not healthy to allow people to walk up the stage and just tell you black is white when it's in their interest to do so. It's like asking Elon Musk to go up and tell you how good Twitter is. It's he just bought the thing. He's not going to tell you it's bad, right? It doesn't make any sense. So, so um, but to, for for petrol and diesel, the future of that is what what COP twenty four and what everyone else wants to do is get rid of combustion engines because uh, in Ireland currently we have about two and a half million combustion engine vehicles on the road at any one time. It's about five million people in Ireland now in the Republic side. I think it's close to seven million people if you count Northern Ireland into it. Uh, and between the two countries, like it is about three and a half million vehicles between the two of them, all of them combustion engines or some form of combustion. There's a very, there's only about 14% of the market is actually electric at the moment. Uh, and they're fueled by dirty fuel anyway. So if you if you start going back to where the electricity is coming from in Ireland, we do have turf-fired power stations, coal-fired power stations. We do have all those things that are nasty for the environment. So it, it's it's going to be a very slow transition, although the Green Party wants it to happen by 2035. So traceability is still an issue when it comes to an electric car. Yeah, where it's coming, where the fuel comes from. So you might feel brilliant by plugging it into your house and running, charge up your car and driving off. But it's all a sort of a, a bait and switch. There's there's a there's a moment where right now you don't know what your electricity bill is because your, your bills are going up all the time. You know, every bill is going up. And so it's kind of debatable now. You still save a little bit of money by charging an electric car at home versus fueling a diesel or petrol car. But the, the gap has come down quite a lot. I mean, a hell of a lot. And it's only the other week when I realized that I got into a Skoda Superb as a test car uh, for the week and I drove along. I did 1,200 kilometers on a single tank and I got into an electric car on Friday and I did 200 kilometers on a single tank, 250 kilometers. Kind of weird. We, we spent a lot of time on motorways, but about 250 kilometers in electric car and then I had to charge up again. That cost me 15 euros. So it's... The, the gap is much smaller now between the price of charging electric and charging or, well, fueling a, a petrol or diesel car. Can we discuss maybe alternatives? Because what what I was reading about recently was that, say, Porsche, for example, has come up with this eco-fuel, which they claim mm. is sourced from, you know, um, green 
sources and it's not in other words it doesn't use any kind of um fracking or drilling or anything like that is that just a stopgap or do you think there is a future that maybe in 10 years time somebody could come up with an idea to make the internal combustion engine last that little bit longer well, see, the big problem is humans don't like change. Mm. Humans like things to stay the same, essentially. So when, when you get into a job or you're doing a job and you're there for 10 years and a new manager starts and he comes in with a whole heap of ideas, right? Everybody goes, this job is crap now. I hate doing this. It's a <laughs> terrible job. It was great yeah. for the last 10 years. What do you want to change that for? But obviously the new person wants to make things better or change things around, put their stamp on stuff. So it can be very difficult. And that's what's going on right now. You've got people who we've, we've had about 110 years of internal combustion engine. Uh, we've made various attempts at making hybrids. We even had a good go at batteries. We tried hydrogen a couple of times. We tried a few different things, but essentially we've just stuck with this internal combustion engine. And now we're at a point where we're sort of being forced or at least foisted towards uh, battery power. And car companies are, are lapping it up. Car companies are making the battery cars. So now suddenly there's availability of them as well. The, the thing is, behind that, there's a, there's 110 years of vintage cars out there. Not even vintage. Cars from the last 10 years are not vintage yet. So they're all sitting there. So the worst thing environmentally you can do is just throw them in the ocean, right? Just to recycle the whole lot of them and try and recycle bits. And then you're stuck with all the crude oils and bits that come out of the car and plastic oaks and rubber things that you just can't recycle. The best thing to do is keep them on the road for as long as possible. And that's Porsche's idea. Yeah. Now, Porsche wants to make a fully synthetic fuel. So essentially, they don't want to use anything from fossil realm. What they want to do is create completely synthetic fuel made in the laboratory on a grand scale. And if they're able to make it on a huge, it's very expensive at the moment, but if you can make this on the scale of the non-synthetic fuel, the actual normal fuel you put out of the ground is crude oil, then it's totally possible to keep on making things that is combustion engine without having any of the fossil fuel side effects because the vast majority of CO2 is created in, in pulling the oil from the ground in the first place, not burning the actual fuel. And the refineries as well, of course. Refineries make a massive, they make a massive profit, but besides making a profit, they actually make a huge impact in the environment because they use an awful lot of cobalt to use lithium. They use all kinds of things. Those things that they talk about put into electric cars that have been pulled out of the ground in the Congo and child labor. That was being used for Fossil fuels all along. They use um, cobalt in fossil fuels, in fossil fuel refinement, in much larger quantities than, than electric cars do. So it's there all along. But the, the transition needs to be slower. We need to encourage people. If you're going to get people, you can't force them. You can't do a name and rhyme on it and just announce we want a million cars by 2035 when the car companies couldn't possibly make that many cars. It just It's just physically not possible to do that. Yeah, I think I think that's becoming evident now, isn't it? Because we've got so many um, holdups in terms of deliveries of cars and all. And yep. so, just to be clear, the eco fuel that Porsche are kind of promoting at the moment—that's not a clean uh, output. The output from the engine is still a certain degree of CO two. Still the same, yeah. yeah. Still, if you burn it, it creates CO two. So whatever it is you set fire to, no matter how you set fire to it, you create CO two. You release it. You turn the liquid into a gas. That's essentially what you're doing. Even if you think of the injectors in a car, when it injects in the fuel, it's actually injecting in a sort of a mist. It's more of a gas to begin with. Then the combustion turns it completely into a flame, which causes pressure. The pressure is created by gas, and that goes out through the exhaust. The internal, it's just, this is a direct replacement for petrol to go into a car. So it still creates CO2, but just the creation of the fuel will have no CO2 or, well, limited amount of CO2 
in its creation or transport. So it's it's more of an ideal stopgap than say, as you said there, retrofitting cars or um, using hybrids. Yeah. Because I think hybrids are kind of a dead end, aren't they really? Even Toyota has kind of admitted, uh, Toyota bit of one who has been pushing yeah. hybrids now for a very long time, since like generation, even before generation one Prius, which is an ugly looking car, uh, but it made them very, very famous. Um, the, the hybrid thing has been something that Toyota do very well. And make no mistake, if you're a taxi driver, you're doing someone short distance around a city, hybrids will save you a fortune in petrol because the vast majority of the energy, energy comes from the battery, which is powered by deceleration, not by the engine all the time. So it's the engine cuts in and helps you. But but there's been this move towards mild hybrid and these other versions, which are utter garbage. Like They don't make any sense. Mm-hmm, mild hybrid mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. A little battery dragging around behind you with 70 kgs in the back seat of the car the whole time doesn't make any sense. So I, I like as battery technology goes, we've only got about let's say about eight years or seven years of actual really good research into battery technology. Before that was Nissan Leaf Generation One, which was a brilliant car at its time. But right now it's got old tech in it, really old batteries technology in it. Would only do very short range these days. So the future say for cars and, and for big I'm, I'm interested I know it's not really your thing but I'm sure you probably know more about it than I do I'm interested in how we're going to deal with uh, larger vehicles say vans or even trucks because I've seen Amazon for example they, their new fleet uh, if you go up to um, Dublin there you'll see the, where motor distributors are they're promoting mm. them they got them all parked along there and they're all electric vans these are pretty big vans like they're the yeah, big yeah, mid-sized size, yeah. you know they're the mid-sized Mercedes vans but they're all running on electrical power and I'm wondering um, is it is it almost gimmicky because surely they, they mustn't be making you know much of a profit from the actual running in particular of those models there is a certain amount of greenwashing or yeah. getting on board or public perception washing that's going on. On Post have done it as well. They, a lot of their Post vans are electric as well. And that works for them. Very short range drop-offs, great, because the car will do its maximum potential all the time. Now, how useful that is to the actual employee, I've met a few couriers, not necessarily Amazon couriers, not getting on about Amazon, but I've met some couriers who changed over to electric. I met a courier yesterday who was given an electric van for their courier system. And they say they spend more time at electric charge points than they do delivering stuff. Uh, uh, vans, commercial industry runs on money. The brand doesn't matter so much. A, a business makes decisions based on how much tax they're going to save, how much money it's going to cost, how much money they're going to make over five or six years from it. It's not this instant reaction like you walk into a shop to buy an apple. That's an instant exchange of money versus goods. But Big companies don't make that kind of decision. They make five and six and 10 year plans about how this pans out for them. And we have been completely on the back foot on on two things. And BIK, which is the one that a company car users would know exactly what I'm talking about when I say BIK, about how much money they pay, benefit in kind on their vehicles every every month. We don't encourage electric cars in that respect. Uh, We're actually taking away some of the BIK entitlements for electric cars next year and the grants. But when it comes to business stuff, large users want something that is cost effective over at least a three-year period or at least a one-year period, depending on how often they're going to change their fleets out. So you can imagine Amazon would make a decision to say in 12 months' time, we're going to dump these electric vans onto the market. A second hand, we're going to buy a whole heap of new electric vans. So for Amazon, it doesn't really matter. It's the next user down the track that's actually going to be hurt by this. They, they have warranties, they have solicitors, they have lawyers, they have all these guys working out the terms and conditions of this deal. And so whether it's a good or bad deal, it doesn't really matter. It's a financial deal to them. 
And it's a good deal for Mercedes because they're not only selling vans, but it's good promotion for them. So they can say, we have an electric van. Same will happen to Ford when they come up with their electric transit, which is next year. I've, I've had a little play about one recently, but uh, they have electric transit coming out. So everybody's got some sort of electric van. I was at the ID Buzz launch yesterday. That is also an electric van coming out of Volkswagen. So they're all at it. Now, whether it, whether it's going to work for business who make an entirely different decision about their vehicles, uh, I don't know. But I think the actual future for large industry and on top of big cargo ships, vessels, mm-hmm. possibly even aircraft is more like hydrogen. Yeah, because that was my next question because there seems, it's like the battle has always been, you know, since I can remember back in the 1980s about hydrogen versus electricity. And I I remember yeah. even reading an auto car magazine back around 1990 when the uh, Mark III Golf had a hydrogen engine in it and, you know, had all the things that we just take for granted nowadays, like stop starting and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I even thought then that hydrogen seemed a much more um, favorable um sort of technology but it seems to be there seems to be a good argument about for and against using it isn't there well there's big there's problems with hydrogen hydrogen's not very clean to produce mm. it's it's clean and it's burning so it only emits water after it's burnt off inside the vehicle so that the actual emissions coming out is just is just water but the production of it the actual capturing of hydrogen uh to make it useful is very dirty um, to, then we don't have a hydrogen infrastructure. So we don't have hydrogen fuel stations everywhere that we can just bring the hydrogen to and put it in the ground and have it there. So it doesn't make a lot of sense immediately to, to invest, a huge, to take all our investment money away from electricity and battery power and put it all of a sudden into hydrogen to make that happen. But to, to do it on a large scale, we certainly already have nuclear-powered boats on the, on the ocean. The military have been doing it for years. All of the aircraft carriers that America has on the seven seas right now are all nuclear powered. All our submarines are all nuclear powered. We know how to do nuclear on big scale things. So, but the, the thing is, our cargo vessels, which if you look up our cargo vessels currently, all of them worldwide are powered by diesel. So are all our cruise ships. So they are powered by a stuff called bunker diesel. It's the worst kind of cheap, nasty stuff that would never, it wouldn't even run a car. A car would never even ignite this stuff. It's horrible. Stuff. I've seen it. My my brother used to work for for a fair company, and he brought home a bottle of it one time. And like, it took like five minutes for it to empty out oh, upside it's horrible, down. It's yeah. like gunk. It's just thickest gunk you could ever see. Yeah, but we don't we don't create laws around what those cargo vessels are allowed burn. What mm. we do is we say near the sea, near the sorry, near the, the the beaches where we can see you. You need to turn on a thing called a scrubber. So essentially, it's a carbon scrubber. As the smoke comes out of the stack, it's pulled through the scrubber and it, pu- it pulls away some of the filter stuff. And But it, it collects on this carbon filter. Then when they go out into deep sea, they turn off the scrubber and they empty it out. So it all still comes out, all the dirt and filth and crap that comes out of those vessels. And right now, this is leading up to a point, of course, at Christmas time, where we're all going to go online and start ordering our favorite stuff. And some of that stuff is going to ship from China or it's going to ship from America, or it's going to ship from Australia, or somewhere else on the face of planet Earth. And the only way it's going to ship is not by airplanes, not by nice, clean, low CO2 carb. No pigeons are going to bring it. It's going to come in a great, big, filthy cargo ship. And I don't want to do people out of work, but there is zero investment. Zero investment. There's a lot of greenwashing going on from those companies that make those cargo vessels and make those those cargo vessels go around the world. There's a lot of stuff. You go to their website, you'll see, we're investing in this, that, and the other. But realistically, cash for cash, they're investing nothing in the cleaning of those cargo vessels because they can't get them off the ocean long enough to do anything with them anyway. They're all out all the time. And pulling us back, say, to hydrogen, um, 
can I talk to you about the the actual lack of inform, information that people have about how hydrogen works in a car? Because I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's fairly fairly well versed in how a car runs. He was saying that you know it goes straight into a type of hydrogen engine, but that's not the case. It it's basically still using it as form of electricity, isn't it? It, well, you have two ways. So you you've got um, so hydrogen fuel cell is one of them, where you mm-hmm. put a where you put a cell full of hydrogen. It sounds deadly, but it's a fuel tank. You know what I mean? You're putting a, a liquid fuel tank into something that powers the the fuel from that is used to make a battery charge, and the battery then powers a normal electric motor. Now you can convert a car to burn hydrogen. Hydrogen is a combustible product, so you can. There is a way to make a petrol-powered car run on hydrogen. Now, the legality of that, I'm not sure, because we we can't even do vegetable-powered stuff here. So if you wanted to make, you could make a diesel engine run on vegetable oil if you cleaned it enough, right? You know, chip fat. Um, you'd have to clean out all the crap out. But you could make it, it certainly has been done over the years, but there is tax implications to that. There is excise duties and things to pay, and it actually make it probably less affordable. But you could do that with hydrogen here as well. So they're the only, you can directly burn hydrogen or you can indirectly burn hydrogen, but essentially you have to burn hydrogen as you would normally. So there isn't a um, a hydrogen engine, so to speak. There's there's a way of making hydrogen turn into battery power, and that's about it. And in your own opinion, I know you don't want to call it because it's probably way too early anyway. Do you think we're going to see either one of those in terms of electro- electricity and hydrogen, one of them winning out? Or will it be more of, as we spoke earlier on, about using different, different modes for different sorts of of sizes of vehicle. I think we're going to see commercial choices being made. So the home user will be, will be battery powered. I think the, the person at home, because electricity is everywhere, and it's the big one, Ken, the infrastructure is already there for electricity. There isn't a single place in Ireland you would be able to go to to find at least a three-pin plug in somebody's house, right? So even if you were got into the back end of Spiddle somewhere off out there in the west of Ireland, you will eventually find electric stuff but you will not find a hydrogen fuel station. So that's, yeah. that's, you're at a loss immediately is the problem that you just isn't a hydrogen fuel station. So unless you're going to, unless you're going to go back to the early days of Mercedes and, and Mrs. Mercedes carrying a bottle of petrol in the boot of the petrol powered car across Germany and then finding petrol in a chemist is the only way she can keep on going. So there's the, uh, that's the only way to do it. So, what, what I think will happen is for the personal user, we're going to go through a phase of a lot of battery technology, huge amount of that. Now, there might be some other revolutionary thing will come along, but I actually think it'll be solid state batteries will be the next big thing. Uh, and then use, and just using better use of the energy in, in vehicles because uh, a combustion engine uses about 50% of its power uh, all the time. The rest is lost in essentially heat. Uh, it just, just disappears into, into the world. Whereas a, a battery-powered vehicle, or, um, the motors in it are about 95% effective. So once we find that other 5% effectiveness, and learn how to control the heat of the battery, we'll be able to get further on the same batteries we got now. And that's already happening in some brands. Uh, Volkswagen has already upped the, the range that their ID4 can do without changing the battery at all. So it's all come down to kind of software usage and how that's working. For the commercial industry, because you're dealing with billions of a change, right? It's not just change out one plane. One plane aircraft costs millions to buy, just a single one of them. So the change for Ryanair to go from using kerosene, which is essentially what they burn as jet fuel, to running on hydrogen is not a small job to make that happen. So that's a huge investment to make happen. It would need a huge infrastructure to go across all of Europe 
just for Ryanair, the biggest flyer in the sky, to make their change because they need fuel wherever they're going. So they can't just go somewhere that has no hydrogen in it. They need fuel all the time. And they need to be at a cost effective. Now, if the if a cost effective way came out of making hydrogen available for for aircraft industry at a lower price than jet fuel now, they'd take it. Without a bat of an eyelid, they would do it because it's a commercial it's a commercial thing. And the same for cargo vessels. Cargo vessels will have to change. They're the dirtiest thing on the face of planet Earth at the moment. Forget about your little local car or or Betty down the road in her one litre Yaris. Mm-hmm. Uh, a cargo vessel puts out enough per hour to dwarf the amount of CO2 that Ireland puts out in a year. And it's crazy when you think about it, like, because, you know, we've all been on the ferries going across to UK or Ireland or whatever yeah. in the world. And you don't really think about it because it kind of looks clean and tidy on board. Yeah. But when you see the guys going by you, the Mersks, and, you know, you see the, just the amount of weight that they're pushing and carrying, like they, yeah. their engines, like I've seen a diesel engine for boats and they're colossal. They're the size of houses. Huge things. Yeah. Enormous thing. Now, ferries are one who, ferries are actually kind of cost effective because they're mass transit. You yeah. know, you've got a few hundred people and all of their vehicles on board. So it's kind of Okay. Cruise vessels, big cruise vessels, they're crazy. Like they they sail into areas. They they never turn off the engines. In port, out of port, anywhere, the engine is always running. If you go up to Dublin, into the port now, and there's a ferry, or not a ferry, but a cruise vessel sitting there right now waiting to pick up all the passengers, you can watch the smoke coming out of the stack the whole time. It's never off. So they're constantly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, burning hundreds and thousands of litres of the cheapest form of diesel they can buy because it's a, it's a commercial product. So they're going to buy at the cheapest rates. And if you multiply that by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cargo vessels that are currently being loaded out in in China and Hong Kong and places like that, and they're going to sail around the entire face of the planet to bring you some plastic toy that your kid wanted for Christmas this year. And that's what you're doing. Instead of instead of making purchasing, and I'm not saying you can't look, you can't buy a PlayStation that's built in Ireland, right? It's, just, it's not there. They just don't happen. But you can buy things that are in Ireland. You need to cut down the amount of stuff we're buying. The reason those cargo vessels are on a sale and all the time is because we continue to buy stuff and we don't even think about where it's been brought from. Exactly. And what's worse is that those car, those vessels, they have a particular long life, don't they? Like I've seen some of them, you know, and they'd have like 1990 on the side of them where they've been yep. popping around for 35 years. I mean, that's a long time. And so there's so little turnover in them. None at all, really, because even cruise vessels, um, there's a great video on YouTube of a cruise vessel being updated so an older one from I think it was from the 80s or 90s and it's being updated to a new version of it what they do is they cut the whole thing in half and make it longer they insert another bit into it to make the the vessel longer but the engines are given no attention at all there's nothing happening there they just do what they're doing and they put in the carbon scrubbers and they say it's cleaner and they say this this. there's a lot of talk about environment there's a lot of there's a lot of pressure on the individual and you have to remember it's not your fault or my fault Ken, we just use the stuff that's been made for us. Exactly. And it's the people who are making the stuff that really don't understand where they're getting their products. So when something's on sale in one of the cheap bargain shops here in the town, it's a plastic box and you think you might need it for storing stuff around your house. Chances are that plastic box is made from crude oil. That's where plastic comes from. It comes out of crude oil and it's probably made somewhere in Taiwan. And has been shipped here in millions of tons in a container by hundreds and hundreds of people to get to you. Now, if you just bought a cardboard box that was made in a cardboard factory in Ireland, there'd be none of that. It's just little choices. We all have to make little choices that amount up to a great big choice in the end. It doesn't mean you have to give up everything you do. It doesn't mean you have to go without your PlayStation stuff. 
But you need to think about where your product has started to get to you in the first place. And that brings us nightly back to electric cars because making electric cars are not going to save anything in the environment. We give you clean air, the air will be clean because there's literally nothing coming out of electric car when it's driving. So it's not, it's not creating CO2. But it's not going to save the environment because making new things creates more environmental harm than just keeping the thing you have forever. So we've got to be really looking at the source when it comes to the auto industry in particular. The source of everything, source of every part of every industry that you're buying something, you need to make, a, a, to some degree, you need to go back to your grandparents' time where mm. they would have bought a sideboard, which was made by probably some mad carpenter guy, and it gets hand-me-down stuff. You've seen this on antiques roadshows and stuff. Where I've had this for the last 35 years. I don't know where it came from. But realistically, it's made by somebody. It just gets hand down through generations. It's not... It's not the IKEA moment. I don't mean to target IKEA particularly, but like every year people go up to IKEA and change out their furniture, their desks, their kitchens, their everything. That has an environmental cost, whether it's made of wood or it's made of metal, it still has an environmental cost in this manufacturing. So we need to stop being a disposable society. And what's crazy when you look at a car in particular, maybe not so much a van or a truck, but it has so many different components in there that come from so many different parts of the world and so many different concepts from terms of design, comfort, you know, safety and so on. It's like almost like an eco house, isn't it? A modern car. It is, yeah. There are millions of suppliers. Uh, like there's, there's a factory down in Galway that makes a lot of the, the dashboards for Volkswagen mm. for their Golf. Um, there's another factory in Cork that makes a lot of the speedo dials and the LED stuff that's going into cars now comes out of Cork as well. But the amount of the amount of product that goes into a car that's created by thousands of people out there, and then it's assembled together by a couple of hundred people on a factory line before you get it. And then the first thing you do is complain about a creak in the door. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, what I mean? you get it, you bring it home. I don't like it. That light's not working. Yeah, well, I'm a classic car owner. Those things really don't come to mind when my car starts <laughs> no, to do that. It's <laughs> funny when you take someone out of a brand new car and you throw them into something oh. that's 30, 40 years old. And you go, yeah. what's that noise? You go, don't worry about it. If, it's, <laughs> if the car's running, just let it do it. It's, it's character. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the amount of people that, like, there's, there's so many people involved in a whole chain of things there's so many different suppliers in it as well like there's millions and cars cross all the genres so a car is in the fashion industry uh, a car is also often used in the watch industry so you'll see a, a John Travolta right is a great example he'd, he'd be standing with his watch up against his face like this lean on the thing behind him there'll be a car and there'll be an airplane yeah these, these have nothing at all to do with the watch industry <laughs> but it's because they're cool and attached to that and in, then in the back of that, there's a technological industry. There's loads of engineers, loads of lads who developed the suspension, the braking systems, the mechanics, the everything that's involved that has nothing at all to do with you using the car in the end. We expect it at the other end of it then to last 20 years and keep on the road for 20, 30, 40 years. And like classic car guys will know, cars can be 100 years old and Absolutely. they're still running. Yeah. If they're built properly, it is, and minded like. Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, it, it depends on your own enthusiasm, how much money and how much time you're willing to put into the Money but, it usually involves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Classic cars are not for the faint-hearted. I always tell people no. that. <laughs> I want to ask you about going on to, say, the design evolution of a car, because you have the classic image of the 1969 Mini, and then you have the 2009 Mini, which even yep. though 10 years ago, it's still, the difference is just incomparable. They're so big compared to what we had, say, back yeah. then. And this seems to be a growing trend as a result of the SUV 
market, which in some ways has become the dominant market. I, I think I read somewhere, maybe you can correct me wrong, that the, in America, the entire Ford range now is all SUVs, that, you know, yeah. bar the one or two cars. Like, for example, one of the most mainstream classic, you know, ideas of a car, family car that we have here in Ireland, which would have started off as the console, the Cortina, Sierra, and then Mondeo. No Mondeo now. That's gone. So, gone, yeah. yeah. So, so it's Fiesta. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, a Fiesta, it's like synonymous with Irish families around the, around the country. And mm -hmm. it was always the starter car or the second car or the daughter's car. And, you know, these things are being replaced and they're being replaced by these enormous cars. And I'm wondering, is this a proper way to go or has something gone wrong somewhere along the road? Excuse the pun. <laughs> Bashing has gone wrong and your first start. I'll tell you what, the, the big deal is uh, the SUV thing. There's a big problem with SUV. So an SUV in America is a Ford F-150. And if anyone wants to Google that right now and have a look what a Ford F-150 looks like. It's like a tank. Just look at the height of the car, right? The, it's as tall as our Ford Transit. That's what their SUV is, right? That's a proper... Uh, it, they're not even that great off-road, but that is an actual SUV. So those yokes are huge and they're often powered by V8 engines. And you're talking about six liter, 6.3, seven liter engines that are powering these cars. And they're hugely fuel, uh, fuel inefficient. Uh, they're also not even that big inside. They're, it, weirdly, they're not actually that large of a vehicle when you actually start driving them. A lot of cargo space. We have an imitation European version of that. Uh, we call an SUV, which is much more like a Ford Kuga. Right. So which is which a Ford Cougar is a Ford Focus that they've changed the look of and made it a little bit taller. So essentially you're buying a five door hatchback, but it looks a bit taller and they call it a Cougar. And the same applies to most of those SUVs, like a Tiguan is a Golf that's been kind of messed with and made bigger. So they've all got these SUV looks and it's come down to fashion and they're certainly not efficient. You're trying to drive a a, a rather large, broad, tall vehicle through the air at 120 kilometers an hour. So the fuel efficiency is not great in them compared to a hatchback or an estate car, which are much bigger. And we have this idea that because we can see over traffic, which is where it started first, you could you had a higher seating position so you could see over the top of all the cars. It's great. But actually, everyone's driving an SUV now. Same, yeah. You can't see over the cars because they're all the same height now so <laughs> to see anymore. So you're not a big fan of SUVs. You, you probably prefer no. to have variety within a model range. I think if you need to have a Ford Ranger or you need to have a Volkswagen Amrock or one of those kind of big industrial vehicles where you're actually using for your business, great stuff. If you have a purpose for it and you're earning money from it deadly. But if you're driving one of them to bring the kids to school, you're being probably the most inefficient you can possibly be in that vehicle. You know, if that's your family daily runabout, great. If you want to spend all your money doing it, I'm okay with that. That's all right by me. But if you want to be actually efficient and buy something that's big for family, you should buy something like a Skoda Octavia or a Skoda Superb Estate. Any of those estate vehicles are so much bigger than SUVs usually. I know they don't look maybe the way you want them to look, but they're much more efficient. Uh, because, you know, the argument is, right, that people are saying when it comes to the SUVs, that they're safer, okay? Then the other argument is that people are saying that um, it's it's the EU. The EU are introducing all these um, safety, uh, in, you know, infringements really that are kind of just pre mm. preventing car designers from being more creative. So what the result is, they all have to have the same size bumpers, they all have to say, have the same size lights. No pop-up lights, for example, are allowed anymore. But are, are they just being lazy, the car designers, or are they genuinely being held back a little bit from making the cars more individual looking. 
Well, in your original example, going from an original Mini to the current Mini, yeah. that's the reason why the Mini is so much bigger than it used to be because of crumple zones, airbags, side impact airbags, side impact crumple um, tension bars, all that sort of stuff. That would make the car bigger because you still have to have a cabin. So you can either intrude in the cabin space or you can make the car broader and put the stuff on the outside of the car. Or you can end up like Mad Max and put some sort of grill on the outside of the car entirely where it's around the edge. It doesn't make any sense. But there is, there was a point where we went through. So a good example of it is the, the the bonnet length of a car. So when you look at most cars, they all have essentially the same length bonnet. You'd even see it in electrically powered cars now where the bonnet is still, the same. they don't even need one. There's no engine there anymore. They now, have, But they have the same length bonnet. And the reason that is, is because of the fifth star in the end cap rating. So when you hit a pedestrian, you're supposed to hit a pedestrian at a certain height so you don't break their femur, the upper leg, part of the leg. You're meant to hit them around the hip. And so that donates the kind of height that the front of the car will be at. And you can't let their head hit the windscreen because the windscreen is the hardest part of the car. So if they hit it, they're going to break their head open. So they want them to hit somewhere around the middle of the bunch. Now, those two little factors, if you want to pass the pedestrian safety base, those two little factors are going to donate the height of the car and the length of the bonnet, no matter what's powering it immediately, because the bonnet is very soft. And even in Volvo's case, they tried to do a deployable bonnet. So the bonnet, when you hit a pedestrian, the bonnet will pop up on an airbag system and will meet the pedestrian way back down. And it's a brilliant idea. Great. An airbag comes out across the, the windscreen. And it, if they hit the wind, that's how they were going to get around it was this airbag, deployable airbag. Unfortunately, that airbag goes off in ordinary collisions as well because it doesn't know if it's pedestrian or not. So there's, there's a problem with that. But so to some degree, the safety has done things to the car for the benefit of the people. And the end cap rating, which we put an awful lot of emphasis on, has now run into trouble because of that. Because if you look at something like a Dacia, uh, the newer Dacia's out there, the Jogger, I think it's called, it only got one star because they, they tested a Sandero and called that a Jogger. And Sandero doesn't have any of these deployable things. And so there's a bit of a kickback towards whether the end cap is actually relevant anymore because of the way, like you look at how many crashes and collisions happened in minis with nothing. Your knees are the airbag against the dashboard. You know, you're probably driven, right? Your face is a disturbance. Yeah. So uh, like they're they're brilliant and yet they carry five people. Yeah. And, but they never go fast enough to have a crash anyway. That's the thing. This is the argument, isn't it, that people make. Like, you know, they talk about, say, the SUVs are so big now that it doesn't matter where you hit it's the chances are you're being hit like the equivalent of a, a van from the 1990s yep so in, it is they're huge like. and in terms of say motoring for the next be, the next big thing because again there these come into arguments you know especially when you look at the teslas and the, the self-driving issue some of them have gone horribly wrong in some cases and I'm just wondering, in your opinion, because you've got your finger right on the pulse of the industry, where where is the next big thing going to happen in motoring? It's personal transport is the next big thing. It's making the decision to have it's the final mile. It's the it's the bit the bit that we're not talking about is what a car sits still for about eighteen hours a day. Okay, so when you get up in the morning. If you don't work from home, if you work in an office, you probably drive for about an hour to the office and about an hour home. That accounts for two hours of a day. Maybe you drive to lunch. Maybe you go to the gym or you go shopping after work, which well, let's just add in another hour there of three hours of actual driving per day. And we'll add in another hour to cater for picking up kids from school, picking up the missus or the missus picking you up in the car. So let's say four hours a day out of 24 hours, you're actually in your car as a normal home user. Different story for guys who work in vehicles or go 
you know, if they if they go in a van every day or they're they're a sales rep or something in a car and they're in the car all day long. That's a different story. But the ordinary human being spends about five or six hours in their car maximum per day, every day. And for the rest of the time, the car absolutely sits still. It doesn't go anywhere. It's parked outside the thing. Like when you drive it to work, you park it, you wait to leave it alone. You're not going to hear it again yeah. the rest of the day. So couldn't that car be doing something else while it's there? Couldn't it be powering the building or could it be picking someone else up to bring around the So it's going to come down to that point where we decide whether we need to own a car or not. So it's actually ownership that's the next big thing. It's whether you decide to buy a car or lease a car or you just pay a rental fee to a car company and every once in a while you get a loan of a car and the rest of the time you just kind of use public transport or or a bus or or maybe a scooter or an electric bicycle, which is much more. Electric bicycles have such an amount of technology in them these days. They go so far on a single charge. It's just, it's scary to see where the bike technology has moved and motorbikes haven't. You know, motorbikes are still very much in their infancy with electric stuff. So there's there's a huge change. And the way you use personal transport is the biggest thing that we're looking at right now. It's whether you'll bother with a car at all. All right. And that's quite that's quite intriguing, isn't it? Because that allows other companies to come in and be manufacturers or leasers that would normally not be in the industry at all. Yeah. Even say us sell a, uh, who's the company? Is it Segway? I think Segway mm-hmm. make a, an electric scooter that Seat and Cooper put into the boot of their cars as an optional extra. So you drive your Cooper to work and then you use the, the little Segway uh, scooter in the boot to continue on driving. I've seen that. And it's like a little pull-out battery, isn't it? That it's like a little yeah. the size of a kind of a, a normal it, battery. Yeah. yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Incredible technology. I think the people that are that are really at the cutting edge are not car I think uh, we often refer to car companies these days like Ford or Volkswagen as legacy companies. Like they're they're left over. They're, they, they've been at it for 100 years now, move over and let the kind of new guys come in. But I think the, the older legacy guys actually have a bigger role to play in the whole system of it than the newer guys who are great ideas come along. But actually, a lot of those great ideas are nonsense. They're really short term, bad solutions to a problem that didn't really exist in the first <laughs> place. Um, I think the choices we make. So we went from when I was a kid, we had one car in the house. My mother didn't drive. My father had a license. That was the only car in the whole house. And it was six boys and two adults. Right. That was it. These days, that same household that still has the six kids with the two adults, if they want, has now got two or three cars, right? They've got, they they will not walk or cycle anywhere. And if you go down to like a family of four, a standard family of four, they've usually got two cars these days. And um, a great example is if you look at something like a Lidl or an Aldi and you look at the car park of what's in Lidl, what parks outside there, and you notice the car park is jammed close to the door of Lidl, Right. And it thins out the further back from the door you get, right? Because exactly. people won't even park on the other end of the car park and walk. <laughs> they want to drive right up to the front door. And here's the thing, so here's the thing, Bob. I, I always park down the other end because I don't like being smacked by another car. So <laughs> car people. Because I'm a car person. Miles away. Yeah. We go to the other end of the car, we <laughs> exactly. park up because we don't want to get the door bangs or the shop and drive. Absolutely. And then some guy parks beside you and you're going, wow. Well, uh, I know. Yeah. So how far away from things like that? <laughs> That's very true. It's very yeah, but true. That, it's a laziness thing. And I think I think yeah. once the laziness, once you get over the lazy idea of why why we do that, and then you'll realize that you could just walk to the shop or cycle to the shop. You know, it's these things are quite easy. This is what my mother did. She would have cycled mm. to the shop ev- forever, you know. Yeah, I think it's coming back, as you say, because bikes are becoming bicycles are becoming so cool now. Prices are shooting yep. up into 10 grand and people are buying them, you know, they're because they're a real status symbol. Even in a rural area where I, I am here. 
I see them all the time, like guys yeah. on the weekend just fluting around on them. You know, I've, I've we just seen need to criminalise the theft part. That's we it. Need yeah, to really, uh, to some degree, we make it like the old days of stealing a horse. You know, yeah, where you're hung, you could be killed <laughs> for stealing the horse. That's <laughs> kind of where we need to go with bicycles because I've been more recently. I've been in like Oslo, uh, Stockholm, anywhere up the Nordic countries where, where bicycle use is so high they're nearly like litter. I mean, they're, they're trip over. They're all over the place. And bike parks where they park just look so messy. Bikes are just shoved in. You know, everybody's got a bicycle. Everybody rides kind of old-fashioned, high Nelly type bikes. They don't really, there's not a lot of electric stuff. Um, but in, in there, they have such very, very high laws about the theft of bicycles. Like you could go to jail for six months in somebody's country for stealing bicycles. Yeah. So, so we got, so we got to here, basically criminal, you know, make sure that it's really yeah. treated as a proper crime and not just as a loss of cheap property because they're not cheap anymore. No, God or not. No, even the, like the most basic bicycle is between 500 and 1500 yeah, euro for like a standard bike and there's no electric part. Yeah. And if Eamon Ryan or, or the Green Party actually want to encourage something to happen, Encouraging us into electric cars is the worst environmental decision you can possibly make. Encouraging us into bicycles or into alternative transports like scooters, Mm -hmm. which we're still waiting for legislation on electric scooters, on uh, electric skateboards, on all of these other modes of transport that are going to become common, whether the old man in the legislation group wants it to happen or not, it's going to happen. It's already happening. They're already all over the place in Dublin. Loads of people now commute using electric scooters every day. Cyclists are always giving out about them because they're just in the traffic with the cyclists the whole time. Yeah, so you need to be very fast as legislators to make things happen, to encourage the behaviour we're looking for. Because the behaviour we don't want is for people to make more rubbish of electric cars, buying the wrong thing and then having to dispose of it in four or five years time because it's not working for them. Absolutely. Bob, before I let you go, I have a question that I always ask everybody and I'm Dying to find out what you're going to answer me with. Uh, what What are you reading, Scary. watching, or listening to at the moment? That's there's a few things I've been watching. Uh, Apple TV has been pretty good for the last while, which mm-hmm. I've been I've been looking at stuff there. Slow Horses is on that, uh, which is definitely worth to watch. C is on that, which is worth to watch as well. Um, there's just a couple of good series on that as well. But more currently, what I've been really, really reading up about is paganism. And I know that sounds like a real weird one to go Great. for, but it's a, not a religious <laughs> thing. But being a pagan and what that meant, because this country. And this whole Celtic area of Scotland, England, Wales, mm. the whole lot would have been nothing but pagans. Uh, and it's not what people think it is. It's not some sort of wild jumping around a place half naked. It's not that. It's a, it's a totally different respect for the environment, respect for nature. And there's a huge amount of uh, paganism that goes on. It's called Wicca. It's called all kinds of names as well. But that's really what I've been uh, investing a huge amount of time in the evening. I've been going to the library and getting books out about it now, just kind of figuring out what we can yeah. learn from those people because they were the masters of nature and the environment and we have a lot to learn from our ancestors because we've forgotten about them. Absolutely. They understood how nature works in terms of times and scales and so on. And worked with seasons. Can yeah, you imagine? Yeah. We don't do that. We have a calendar and we yeah. go, it's November. I want strawberries. Yeah. So let's get <laughs> exactly. them from Tanzania or somewhere mad like that. Yeah. Whereas they didn't do it. They wound down into the wintertime. They went into their winter foods and did a, there was a huge amount of, of respect for how you use nature and how nature works with you. And they they had no clocks or anything. They didn't do that stuff we did. Uh, we're talking about megalithic times. So they didn't really have a watch, an Apple watch on their phone telling them anything about appointments. or It just all worked with the environment. So when the sun shone, you worked 
When it rained, you didn't. And that's kind of that's kind of it. We've forgotten how to do all that sort of stuff. And Henry Ford, by the way, just a little tip for everybody. If you ever want to know why you work a nine to five, uh, why anyone works nine to five, it's all down to Henry Ford. He created so you could spend more time at home with your with your family. He created nine to five PM and all the suppliers had to obey that time. So everybody had more time at home. And then we made the biggest mistake and changed it into shift work. Suddenly it was nine to five and then five to nine. <laughs> so there's no time at home with family. <laughs> exactly. Bob, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. But I want to find out wh- how people can get in touch with you. What's the best way to see what you do? Because you do great videos and that. The best way to do it is Google me because if you just Google Bob Flavin, I'm the top result for some strange reason. Google likes that. But it's, YouTube is my main outlet for, for car videos. I do TikToks as well. I became hugely famous on TikTok last year that I couldn't go outside the front door for a while. Um, and that was more of a controversial, not just cars, there's all kinds of stuff on TikTok, could be anything. And I, I use Twitter and Instagram as well to some degree, but I don't use Facebook. It's very bad for mental health. Stay away from it. Yeah, I agree. Facebook is, is, is it's a going the way of the Zephyr, I think. <laughs> so Facebook is a dangerous place for, even when you don't think it's being dangerous, it's dangerous for your mental health. I, I, I promise you, I know a, a fella who writes the algorithm that keeps you scrolling and he, he wrote the original stuff out there and the main trust of that algorithm is to keep you on Facebook no matter what it is you're looking at. No matter whether it's negative or positive for you, it's to keep you there. They don't care what you're looking at. They just care that you're not leaving Facebook to do anything else. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I Except it's not the algorithm's not working on me because I, I have no intentions of scrolling anymore with Facebook. <laughs> no, um, I, no I, I, I just social media is brilliant once you keep it social. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> or if it's informational in your, in your terms. Yeah. No, Bob, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to me on The Comfortable Spot today. It's been brilliant chatting to you about one of my favourite topics. No problem at all. Anytime. And thanks to everybody out there for listening today. We'll be back real soon with the next episode. So uh, take care, y'all. Bye-bye. <laughs>